ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Professor Michael Cox, uh, founding co-director here of LSE Ideas, and it's an honor today to be here to welcome you to the LSE and to introduce this evening's event, which is hosted by LSE Ideas and BBC Radio 4. Uh, the event is the latest in a series of talks which we here at the school have been pleased to host in partnership with BBC Radio 4, which are recorded for broadcast. We're delighted to work with Radio 4 on these events and are very much looking forward to the next event. That will be on the 24th of March and we'll see the BBC's uh, Evan Davis in conversation with Professor Deirdre McCluskey. I've been asked to tell you uh, that we may need to do some retakes at the end of the event, so please stay seated until it's confirmed we have finished recording. I'm pleased to be able to tell you that tonight's event will be broadcast tomorrow evening on Radio 4 at 8pm and also on the World Service over the weekend and no doubt will be available as a podcast afterwards. Tonight's discussions, I'm sure we're all aware, looks at potentially one of the great crises of the early 21st century that currently unfolding in Ukraine. How it unfolds over the next few days and weeks could very easily determine the future of Europe and the character of the West relationship with Russia for many years to come. The stakes, I think we all agree, could not be higher. Wise counsel, balance and cool heads are therefore needed as probably never before in these dangerous times. One of those heads, I am pleased to say, will be chairing the session tonight. Bridget Kendall, who I'm sure will be familiar to you as the BBC's diplomatic correspondent and former Moscow correspondent. It's with great pleasure that we welcome Bridget and all this evening's speakers, Anne Applebaum, Sir Roderick Braithwaite, Ben Judah and Alexei Soblachengro, to the LSE. At least two of our speakers have spoken at the school before. Indeed, Anne and Applebaum held the Philip Ramon Chair in International History and international affairs in LSE ideas here at the school during the last academic year. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for tonight's event is hashtag LSE Ukraine. Although please do make sure your phone or tablet is on silent. As usual, as part of the event, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to the panel. And I believe there will be two sections on the event where you will have the chance to put your questions. But now, will you please join me in welcome Bridget and all of tonight's speakers to the London School of Economics. Thank you very much indeed. Welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm Bridget Kendall, and as you've heard, I'm joined by a lively audience for this special programme focusing on Russia, Ukraine and us. Or if you're listening on the BBC World Service, focusing on Russia, Ukraine and the world. We've seen impassioned crowds, snipers shooting civilians, soldiers in camouflage without insignia, troop movements and crisis talks across Europe. Already, when I was in Moscow just a few days ago, a place I know well and have been reporting from for more than 20 years, it was beginning to feel as if the situation might spin out of control. And it seems extraordinary that in just a few weeks, a country like Ukraine could be a trigger for a crisis that threatens to split the world. So what does President Putin want? What sort of country should Ukraine be? And can the European Union and the United States agree on what to do? 
To help answer these questions, I'm joined by four experts on this part of the European continent. They are the award-winning historian Anne Applebaum, who's currently writing about Ukraine's history, Sir Roderick Braithwaite, whose long and distinguished diplomatic career includes a posting as Britain's ambassador to Moscow, as well as foreign policy advisor inside Number 10 Downing Street. Ben Judah, who's travelled widely across Russia and Ukraine, and last year he published a wide acclaim, Fragile Empire, Fragile Empire, how Russia fell in and out of love with Vladimir Putin. And also joining us is Alexis Sologubianko, who oversees BBC News for Europe and the Americas and is a former head of the BBC's Ukraine service. So let's give them a warm welcome. I'm going to ask each of you on the panel just briefly to start with, if you can just make, give me a brief answer. What do you think is the single most important moment of the Ukraine crisis that we've witnessed in recent days? Anne Applebaum, start us off. I think the most important moment was when uh, the Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, signed an agreement to uh, pass a new constitution and hold early elections and then left the room, left the building, told his security guards to leave all the government buildings, abandoned them, and left the country. And that set the scene both for the, uh, the Ukrainian parliament to take over the governing of the country and also for him to become a fugitive and for a counter-narrative about a coup d'etat to begin. What about you, Roderick Braithwaite? Well, I, um, the thing that has struck me most is something slightly different. This is an exceptionally complicated story with lots of different conflicting points of view and a very long history. And what has struck me is how poor the coverage in the media has been of all these complications until quite recently. Until quite recently, it was a punch-and-duty show, black and white, binary, perfectly simple. In the last two or three weeks, thanks to people like Bridget, we've learned how very, very complicated it is and what a very long history there is there. Let's hope we're going to hear more this evening as well. Alexei Salagubianka, what's your thought? I think the most important point in history of the current crisis is when uh, Mustafa Nayem, who is a son of Afghan refugees in Ukraine and a very well-known journalist in Ukraine, uh, tweeted to his, I think, 20,000 followers uh, right after President Yanukovych decided not to sign the agreement uh, with the European Union asking his followers to come out into Independence Square in Kiev and to start protesting. And I think that one tweet probably changed history. Ben Judah. Uh, Up until now, we've never known how far Putin will go. We've never seen Putin really with his back against the wall. We've never known how willing Putin would be to use violence, to kill people and to attack other countries. The scene of how far Putin has gone in Ukraine to defend his his power there is a terrifying preview of how far Putin will one day go in Russia. Okay, controversial view. We haven't got a Russian here to counter it, but we've got plenty of time to talk about it. And before we explore some of these points in more detail, let's just gauge the opinion here at the London School of Economics. Raise your hand if you're really worried about the way the events are unfolding in Ukraine. Ooh, that's almost the whole hall. Let's test it. Let's try it the other way around. Raise your hand if, if you're not worried, if you think, actually, this can get resolved, this is, we, should, we shouldn't over-exaggerate here. Okay, there's, I would say, 10% maybe 
Yeah, okay, we'll be interested to hear from both sides of you uh, a bit later in the programme. But let's start with a bit of background, and let's start with the Crimea, the Black Sea Peninsula in southern Ukraine, which has become such a focus in this crisis, and a reflection of the wider tensions between Russia and Ukraine. And let's start with its history, because one of the things we're trying to do in this programme is to get a deeper understanding of this crisis. Now, many of the listeners here in the UK... Uh, would probably think that Crimea means above all the Crimean War of the 19th century or that celebrated poem by Tennyson, The Charge of the Light Brigade, or or maybe the British nursing pioneer, Florence Nightingale. But Alexei Solokubienko, what does Crimea mean for Ukrainians? I think for Ukrainians it means um, the land gained, the land lost, uh, and uh, something in between, because before the Second World War, uh, it was an autonomy which was called Crimean Tatar Autonomous Republic. And uh, the population mix there was completely different to what we see now. Uh, the majority were Tatars uh, in areas like Yalta, Sudak, the whole southern coast. It was 67%, 70% Crimean Tatar population. Ukrainians were in the north of the uh, across the uh, Crimean uh, mountain ridge, and there were certainly Russians there. And then there were two terrible events that happened in the history of Crimea, which I think every Ukrainian, certainly every Crimean Tatar knows. One event was 1932-1933. That was the Stalin's famine uh, in Ukraine. And I think that famine killed half of the Tatar population. Uh, the estimates are about 300,000 died, along with millions of Ukrainians, obviously, but in Crimea, that was the first hit. And the second uh, very tragic date was, I think, 17th May 1944, uh, when Crimean Tatars were deported by Stalin, uh, exactly like the Chechens, exactly like Circassians and people from Northern Caucasus. He accused them of collaborating with the Nazis and deported the whole population. We're talking about 400,000 people, maybe more, uh, put into carts, uh, moved uh, all the way to Uzbekistan, mostly some to Kazakhstan. Uh, many died on the ways, uh, on, the, on, the, on the road. And I think after the Second World War, Crimea completely changed its uh, ethnic uh, makeup because a lot of the uh, ethnic Russians moved south. Uh, same happened in the Caucasus, for instance, in Abkhazia, uh, where you know people were moved away from the prime locations, and then a lot of ethnic Russians, some ethnic Ukrainians, also were moved in. So what we see now is a slightly different Crimea to what it was there. And one final thing, uh, I heard from one of the commentators that people of Crimea, when Khrushchev handed it over to uh, to Ukraine, uh, which was kind of, you know, it was not a drunken thing, because uh, mindset... Well, hang on, let's pa- pause at this moment, because this yeah. is important, isn't it? it you're, is important. you're naming these dates which are important yeah. to Ukrainians, but this is a date that's very important yeah. to Russians. 1954, <laughs> when Crimea, which had been part yeah. of the Russian Federation, suddenly the Soviet leader, yeah. Nikita Khrushchev, hands it to Ukraine. Yeah, and there were two reasons for that. One was kind of the celebratory mood of Khrushchev. Uh, it was 300th anniversary of a very, very important event, which was the reunification of Ukraine with Russia. Reunification was kind of the Soviet terminology. Previously, you know, for Ukrainian historians, it was more the absorption of Ukraine with Russia. If you are uh, in the center of Kiev, you will see Hetman Bogdan Hmelnitsky on his horse, uh, and he's pointing his mace towards Moscow. So the Soviet interpretation was that he was saying, uh, this is a 
our friend Moscow, let's be together with them. The Ukrainian interpretation was, watch out, you know, the enemy is over there, and they fooled me, and don't be fooled again. So there was one reason, 300th anniversary of that event, when Ukraine was sort of uh, absorbed or reunited with the uh, Duchy of Moscovy. That was the first thing. But the second reason is, Khrushchev's mindset in 1954 was very, very, very much conditioned by what happened in 1953, the death of Stalin, uh, the kind of the cleansing of everything that was before. He was preparing for the 20th Party Congress. And I think in that spirit, I think it, wa- it seemed like a good thing to do, almost like a repentance, I think, because of the tragic history of Ukraine, of, of the Crimea, and the way it was uh, handed over and handled, rather, by Russia. But what do you think this transfer, Roderick, meant for Russians? What, how do, how, because it's often, it seems to me Crimea, for Russians, it often felt a very romantic place, and that it was a bit of a trauma that they lost it when it was handed in this way to... Ukraine, that they focused very much on the fact that it had been part of the Russian Empire ever since Empress Catherine. They felt it was somehow theirs, which might be an important emotion to be aware of today. Well, I think the emotions, uh, I'm not talking about what's true or not, I'm talking about what people feel, which is what drives politics, actually, not facts. Um, I think at the time that you're talking about, 1954, it didn't actually, in practical terms, mean very much. They were all part of actually one country which was run from Moscow and that was the Soviet Union Union, and uh, this was a sort of administrative change which might please some Ukrainians. I think, however, if you go more broadly, the Crimea was conquered by Catherine the Great at the end of the 18th century. Um, At that time it was inhabited by Tatars who, not very recently, but a, a century or two earlier had burned Moscow down. They were ancient foes, and uh, Russia took over Ukraine. There were no uh, Crimea. There were no Ukrainians to speak of in Crimea at that time. The cities in Crimea were built by Russians mostly. Above all, Sevastopol, which we know about from the Crimean War, which was built to be the headquarters of the Russian fleet, and it still is the headquarters of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. So it it. Ukraine's relationship with Crimea, I think for most Russians, was an irrelevance. Uh, May I I quote something? Um, I was in Moscow at the time Ukraine was becoming a country. Russia was, the Soviet Union was falling apart. Ukraine was becoming independent. Just before that happened, I went to see uh, one of the advisors to Gorbachev, who said running, still just about running the Soviet Union, and he said to me two months before Ukraine, a month before Ukraine became independent, and this is a man who was entirely against the idea of Russian imperialism, and what he said to me, and I think this colours what we're talking about now, and it goes beyond Putin, what he said to me was, Russia may now be going through a bad time, but the reality is that in a decade or two decades, Russia will reassert itself as the dominant force in this huge geographical area. Meanwhile, Yeltsin, who was just about to become leader of Russia, will have no choice but to assert Russia's position if it is challenged. His entourage will see to that. So if the Ukrainians are too provocative, over the Crimea, for instance, he will have to weigh in with force if necessary. That is in no one's interest. Now, one of the points, apart from the fact that it describes something which has been going on for a very long time, it's one of the points is that this is not Putin-related. 
It's not, this crisis is not only because Putin is the man he is, and we're going to discuss that. It runs deeper and further back in time than that. Let's just get a, a, a response from you, Ben Judah, on this, on um, President Putin and his motivation, because he talks about protecting Crimea. He, uh, Russian television has talked about what's happening in Crimea being a, a personal matter for each and every Russian. It does make you think that he's seeing this as something which people in Russia will respond to. How can you feel emotional about a land? How can you feel love for a territory that's outside your own country. And to understand this, we need to understand one of the fantasies of the Russian elite. The Russian elite has always been a deeply romantic elite, motivated by by ideas, and one of the fantasies that the Russian elite was captivated by in the Tsarist period was that it would be the liberator of Greek Orthodox Christians. It would extend south, not east. It would liberate Constantinople. It would liberate Athens, and Russia would become a classical power. This never happened. But the only piece of the classical world that Russia ever conquered was Crimea. Crimea was the only part of Russia with Doric columns, with Greek temples, with Roman ruins. And this is why the Tsarist elite built their palaces there. They set their romantic poetry there. It became the theatre for their vision of themselves as a great European state with a deep history comparable to Italy, Britain or France. This left a legacy in the Soviet Union, which Crimea was told in propaganda as the most beautiful of all the lands, the treasure of the Union. And what did the Soviet Union do for the people? It built a giant Soviet butlins. It built a giant Soviet holiday camp for millions of people to come and summer in Crimea. If you were a Russian worker, a Soviet worker in the far north of the country, you would be given free tickets to take a train to Crimea and summer there, a summer there every year. So for millions of Russians, Crimea has warm memories, has tropical memories of extramarital affairs in the summer of childhoods in, of childhoods in uh, pioneer camps, of your, smoke, your first puff of cannabis, of fun. Oh. Crimea is different from other territories lost by the former Soviet Union because Russians have actually been there. Russians haven't been to Tajikistan. Russians haven't been to Moldova. Russians haven't been to the marshes of Belarus. But Crimea you, is different. I think you make a good point, though, because if you think about the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, this is... Russia is quite a northern cold country. And if you want to go on holiday, there's not that much Black Sea coast left if you didn't do. have the Crimea. Well, and Applebaum. Although I appreciate everything that my fellow panelists have said, I question how relevant this is to the current crisis. Look, until last week, Russians had no problem going to Crimea. Uh, there's been a Russian base in Crimea for, for more than 20 years that, you know, established by uh, treaties, agreed to by everybody. It's never been in conflict with the Ukrainians. There's never been any issue with having a Russian base there. Uh, there's never been any problem with Russians traveling there, Russians own property there. They live there. What, what we've seen in the last 10 days is a manufactured crisis. There was no crisis in Crimea. There was no ethnic separatism. There was no fighting. There was no strife. And, and you're saying manufactured by it, the it has been manufactured by the, by, the, by the Russian regime in order to create a problem for the new Ukra- Ukrainian government, among other things. Roger. But, but it's not... But it's not this is, this is not about harking back to distant days and, 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 uh, and, the, and the, you know, the 18th century. This is about the present, and it has been created to, to serve the purposes of the present. Well, I, I obviously can't possibly dis- disagree with what Anne said, but to do that, to manufacture a crisis, which is, of course, what's happened, you have to have the raw material. If you're going to set a fire, you have to have 
some petrol lying around. And what I think Ben says, and what I think, is that these are, these are emotions, these are things in people's minds which you can suddenly trigger off. That's, after all, what happened in Yugoslavia when Milosevic went and stirred up trouble in 1989 with the memories of something that happened 600 years earlier. It's, it's true that you can pin what's happened on individual events and individual people over the last 10 days, over the last three months, over the last 10 years, over the last 20 years. But you need to have the raw material to make a crisis. Well, well, yes, they had Russian troops in their base in Sebastopol whom they moved out over the peninsula in the guise of being separatists, and they've created um, a phony crisis. But it's really, you know, maybe they will eventually play into Russian national emotion and so on, although we don't know that yet. But Um, but, but, But that wasn't how it started. But is this really as dangerous as what was happening in the Balkans yes. in the 1990s? I mean, at the moment, yes, there have been deaths uh, in Kiev, but at the moment it's been largely shadow boxing, hasn't it? There's, um, what happened in Kiev is now being mirrored in Crimea in the argument of the Kremlin. They say, you know, you have a crowd in, in Kiev who topples a president and puts in a new government. Well, why shouldn't Crimea be allowed to do the same thing? We, it hasn't actually come to serious, broad-spread bloodshed. Uh, Alexei, you want to come Well, on? and this is the, uh, the lucky escape that it hasn't come to serious bloodshed, because if you look at the numbers, the latest, according to the Ukrainian border guards, uh, is 30,000 Russian troops. Obviously, President Putin says there's not a single Russian soldier there. They're all <laughs> self-defense. Uh, in Ukraine, they're now referred to as green men. Uh, so As those, in little green men. Yes, but uh, <laughs> there's plenty of evidence they are Russian troops, and they say they are Russian troops. So, uh, Anyway, I think uh, the standoff may continue so much, but just one shot. An elderly lady in a, whatever, bread queue being killed, uh, or a, whatever, somebody fires something uh, nasty, and I think the thing will escalate uh, absolutely uncontrollably. So that's one dimension. But I think the second thing, when we're talking about the emotions of Russians and you know, how they feel towards the Crimea, I think the same emotions are among Ukrainians towards the Crimea, because they also went there. I went there on holidays. So uh, it's, not kind of a, it's not just a prerogative of the Russians to be uh, very emotional about the Crimea. And one of the biggest things that I think Ukrainians thought was fixed with Russia in 1991, when the Declaration of Independence was there, were two things. One was there was a referendum across Ukraine uh, and in Crimea of whether the people support independence of Ukraine and whether they want to be part of it. Figures for Sevastopol, I checked it, 57% in favor of being part of Ukraine. Figures in Crimea, 54% said they they would want to be part of Ukraine. And everybody thought that the borders were fixed that that was it. What's happening now is revision of many other things, not just the referendum results, not just the borders, but the revision of attitude toward Ukraine. Just quick quotes in, in response to your quote. I think Vladimir, Vladimir Vinichenko, who was the socialist leader of Ukrainian Republic, right after the Bolshevik Revolution, the first leader and the short-lived one, uh, he said that uh, Russian democracy ends with the Ukrainian question. Uh, what he meant was that even the most liberal representatives of Russian intelligentsia, even the Democrats there, could never accept Ukraine as an independent state, as an entity. They always thought it was an artificial construct. And I think that feeds into a lot of what President Putin and his supporters are feeling now. Quickly, Ben, yeah. 
Russia's a deeply scarred nation, and Vladimir Putin is an expert at rubbing salt into these wounds and manipulating them. And what I'm very frightened about is the hysteria in Russian propaganda that has emerged over the past few months. On Russian TV, in Russian newspapers, on Russian music channels, uh, the Russian state is saying that the forces of Euro-Sodom are enforcing homosexuality on Western Ukrainians, that a million Ukrainians are fleeing World War II Nazi sleeper cells that have overrun the country. Like hysteria like this, this kind of propaganda, we've seen it in, me- it's in many, many countries. We've seen when propaganda becomes this hysterical, it's not very far before people start to get killed. Okay, we'll come back to that thought. I just wanted to uh, explore the, the question, the wider question of Ukraine beyond Crimea for a moment because, you know, there is this sense that it doesn't have a very clear identity, that the West has pulled one way and the East has pulled another. Alexei, is that fair enough? Because Western Ukraine, after all, hasn't been part of the same country as the rest of Ukraine that long. It's only since World War II. Uh, yes, I think the present borders of Ukraine are the result of uh, the Second World War, including Transcarpathia, including parts of Bukovina, uh, including, you know, obviously 1939 also played a role, uh, the Stalin-Molotov, uh, the, St- the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, you know, and the way... Between Hitler and Stalin. Between Hitler and Stalin, when uh, a lot of areas which were under Polish rule were uh, annexed by the Soviet Union. Of course, this is all there. And I think in terms of identity, it's very, very difficult to talk about identity. Is it about blood? Is it about religion? Is it about language? A lot of these identities in Ukraine are now mixed. Ukraine is a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-confessional society. And this is particularly uh, seen among the young people. Uh, I think what is interesting about the process in Ukraine, whether you call them revolution or not, it's up to you. Uh, but I think what is interesting and important, this is the first post-independence uh, generation which is fluent in Ukrainian, which is fluent in English. Some are secular, some are religious. They don't care. Students in Odessa University, in Donetsk University, very often feel the same and feel the same about their country, about the values, about uh, their personality and their relation to the world uh, as students in Lviv or in Ternopil. But it is the case, isn't it, that if you're in Donetsk, you're more likely to hear people speaking Russian, which you probably won't hear in the far west in Lviv. Uh, Well, yes and no, but I think the languages are still very, very close, and I think we need to understand that it's not... Uh, it, it's, it's Spanish and Catalan, you know, it's German and Dutch. You know, there are lots of bilingual countries, there are lots of multilingual countries, but it's, uh, it, it's not the dividing thing. I think the dividing thing is very much the attitude to life, uh, attitude to uh, Europe, not as a geographical concept or political concept, but uh, uh, as a lifestyle. Uh, something that is better, that is less corrupt, that is more transparent, that gives you opportunity. Yes, it gives you risks, uh, but I think people are prepared to do it. The younger generation certainly are prepared to do it. The older generation, the people with nostalgia, people uh, who traveled uh, on free tickets to those uh, sanatoria and various recreational facilities in Crimea, of course they lost their certainty, and they are trying to grab... Uh, you know, at something. It could be the past, it could be the USSR, it could be Russia. Uh, Anne, what's your view on this? With with, with all due respect, Bridget, that was a very Moscow-centric way to ask the question. Uh, So who who is... 
Who, who is it who doesn't recognize Ukrainian sovereignty? It's, it's the Russians who don't recognize Ukrainian sovereignty and who've been unable to deal with the idea that Ukraine is a separate country, much as the British were once unable to deal with the idea that Ireland was a separate country. It's a very, it's a very interesting, an interesting parallel. Also, the, the idea that nations um, which have you know, di- different tendencies or speak different languages in different areas is a very... Um, that, that that should be strange uh, in, in uh, you know, as you say, on a European continent where there are many bilingual countries. Uh, this, this nation that we're, you know, London is the capital of four nations, uh, you know, S- Scotland, Ireland, uh, the English, uh, and the Northern Irish, depending on how well, you that's count. Debate. That's all right. Okay, I'll, I'll be, I won't go there. But, but, you know, many, most European nations, actually, I would say, with one or two exceptions, are, um, are, 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 are multilingual, they are multinational, multi-ethnic, they have many different kinds of people living. In that sense, Ukraine is really no different, um, you know, is, is really no different from Belgium. Uh, the also, I think the bilingual point is an interesting one. Um, you know, for the last few weeks, you know, on CNN, on the BBC, we've seen endless portrayals of maps showing different colors. You know, this is the Ukrainian-speaking part of, of Ukraine. This is the Russian-speaking part of Ukraine. Almost everybody in both of those parts will, will at least understand, if not speak, both languages. This is a profoundly bilingual country. People in Western Ukraine watch Russian television. People in Eastern Ukraine uh, will speak Ukrainian. And you know, they, will, they, they will be bilingual or, or perhaps Russian-speaking Ukrainians. This is not an ethnic divide in the sense that um, you, know, you, can, you can draw a line and these people here feel themselves to be in one country and those in another. It is a, it is a, it is a bilingual country in a very, very deep sense. That may be very hard for the English to understand, with, which, is, which is a monolingual country. Not the Welsh. I want to go to the audience in just a minute. Brief word from you, Ben. Uh, I think I just want to try and help us understand how why Russia finds it so hard to conceive of Ukraine being a different place. I think it's important to understand that in the Soviet Union, Georgia, Uzbekistan, these places were always different. They had different attitudes. They were run by different kinds of people. It didn't feel like the same place. But for Russians going to Ukraine, especially central and eastern Ukraine, it felt like practically the same place. Like Ireland. Exactly. If you, but, if you, but the metaphor is useful. But if you ask Russians, Russia has a very blurred sense of its own borders. If you ask Russians, where That's is the Belgorod? They don't know if it's in Ukraine or Russia. It's a very fluid sense. Why do Russian elites now think that Ukraine is still this Ukraine from the 1980s that looked superficially like exactly the same place? Well, the reason was is that anything that made Ukraine different was repressed. All of Ukrainian identity was viewed as something with associations with fascism or Nazism or peasant culture. So it wasn't visible to Russian elites that were visiting or ruling. And I don't think, for Putin, he's, he's got this. Just to give you an example of how isolated Putin is from the contemporary world, when do you think Putin last went for a walk? Like, on his own? Like, brought something? It's got to at least be before Putin became head of the FSB. So about 1997? <laughs> okay, I'll leave you with that thought because we're going to come back to Mr. Putin in a minute. Let's get some questions, uh, some comments. We want comments, not questions. Comments from the audience. I'm sure there are lots of you who've got things you'd like to say. Do wait for the microphone. And if you'd like to say who you are and where you're from, that'd be great. Yes. Uh, 
My name is Christopher Granville from Trusted Sources, which is an independent uh, investment research company. Can I just uh, ask you, keep it brief? Uh, yeah. Because we're going to have... <laughs> I know... I know. <laughs> As they used to say on its anarcho, three, two, one, go now. Uh, the the Crimean referendum, the Crimean participation in the Ukrainian referendum uh, of the first of December, nineteen ninety-one, where, to the surprise of analysts like me, and I was working in the British Embassy in Moscow at the time, there was, as Alexei has pointed out, uh, a narrow majority in in the Crimea for uh, independence uh, for Ukraine from the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, the surprise has to be understood as part of the economic collapse of the former Soviet Union. There was nothing in the shops. Uh, Moscow was the source of economic dislocation and disaster. Getting away from it might be better. Now what do we see? Uh, we haven't got onto this yet, Bridget, but surely we will. Ukraine is in a state of economic collapse. It is an economic disaster its per capita income in current dollars is less than $4,000. That's less than half of Turkey. It's, less than, it's about a quarter of Russia. And can a country which has survived, which has gone through such an economic catastrophe, such levels of education and culture and industry to be so poor, speaks of bad governance, which is right up there with Argentina and Venezuela, which incidentally uh, bond investors think of in the same bracket. Uh, so... Uh, no wonder that people in Crimea, despite all the, in addition to all the emotion and all the history and everything that's been discussed, there's another motive which needs to be discussed as well. And I'm not a Marxist in my materialist determinism. Thank you. More comments? Yes, here, um, second row. Uh, I'm Alexei Starodubo, LSE student, so, and uh, I used to be a member of Crimean government two years ago, and uh, until last week I was a Councillor to Prime Minister of Crimea. Uh, just a couple of comments uh, with regard to Alexei's statement. Uh, we are talking to the first one. Crimea is the territory of Ukraine. Full stop. The second one is ethnical issue in 21st century is not current one. All people in Crimea now, they are Ukrainians and they have Ukrainian passports. We are not dividing Crimean Tatars uh, ethnical Russians or ethnical Ukrainians, they are all Ukrainian citizens. And uh, now we have uh, armed people on the street in Crimea <coughs> without uh, signs and uh, nothing, but with uh, gun machines and uh, they seized premises, governmental premises, and they seized occupied actually Ukrainian territory. And uh, this is a really important issue, and uh, if you are talking about uh, Ukrainian polarization, uh, East, West, etc., etc., our territory occupied by not identified people with gun machines. And this is a key point, actually. How to solve it, and uh, I don't know. I would like to ask this honorable panel just uh, to pay your attention that uh, our government tried to discuss this issue with Russians, but unfortunately we could not do this because of uh, ignoring of uh, Russian side. And I guess it would be really, really uh, important for us if uh, our European partners, partners will assist us 
to have this conversation and to solve this problem in Crimea with occupation, with autonomy, with an unlawful referendum, with separatist government, uh, whatever, let's call Crimean government right now, right now pro-Russian government, whatever. But this is the main point. We okay, thank you. We, we'll come back to that. Um, more comments from the floor. Yes, a gentleman in front of you. Uh, Keith Raffin, I'm a former member of Parliament. Ben Judah said in his opening remarks that we'd never known until now how far Putin had go, uh, would, would go. What about Georgia? Surely that gave us a pretty good indication. Why have we been so taken by surprise? Okay, um, yeah, I... <laughs> There's a lady there with a green scarf. Can we go to you next? Um, Lily Hyde, I'm the author of Dreamland, a novel about the Crimean Tatar deportation and return to Crimea. Um, I wanted to agree with Anne that obviously what's happening in Crimea is a completely artificially stoked situation, but to ignore the history would mean that it could never have been brought to this point and you've already talked about this Russian nostalgia for Crimea but I think it's also really important to note that the Crimean Tatars associate the deportations, practically a genocide with their people with Russia and so they will never accept a return to Russia um, I also wanted to say um, this idea that Russians don't see a difference between Ukraine and between Crimea and they all associate Crimea with this place where they went for the holidays Crimea isn't like that anymore. Since, since the 1990s, you can see the Crimean presence everywhere. It's a much more multi-ethnic place. And it's not just Crimean Tatars. There are Krimchaks, there are Bulgarians, there are Greeks. And to treat it as a purely Russian place, if you go to Sevastopol, maybe, but not the rest of the country. Thank you. Yes, gentlemen there. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, my name is Andrei Kuzmenko. I'm Deputy Ambassador of Ukraine. Uh, my honor to be here in this distinguished audience. Uh, first of all, I would like uh, to react. Probably I will have the possibility later on. Uh, Crimea, either this is a gift or something else. Uh, after the devastating war and the exile of Crimean Tatars in 1952-53, it was starvation on Crimea territory. where just around 200,000 of people Mainly the employees of the Black Sea Fleet lived. And Mr. Khrushchev decided to uh, make the situation better and sent just Russian settlers there. But unfortunately, they were not very sufficient with agriculture. And uh, these attempts failed. And in 1953, it was the urgent consultations with the Ukrainian government with the request to plow up the lands of Crimea and to help Crimea uh, overcome this devastation. Uh, it is uh, worthy to um, say uh, right now that uh, mainly the fresh water in Crimea Peninsula is coming from built in Ukraine uh, channel. Uh, the 85% of Crimean uh, energy, I mean electricity, uh, this is the Ukrainian product. About the statement that the Russians came and uh, built the cities, well, it's an uh, interesting idea. At the time, we had not railroads, we had not the uh, airports, I mean, 17th century. And the main works on the territory of uh, the uh, Tavrida that time were undertaken by the peasants and the people of the southern 
губерния of Ukraine and including Cossacks. I hope I will have the uh, possibility to... Deputy Ambassador, can I just ask you something uh, that came from another member of the, of, the, of the audience? This question about the economy, economic collapse in U Ukraine now, not just in Crimea, but cr Ukraine as a whole, do you think that this weakens the position of you know, uh, the government? Do you think that people would react to the idea of economic collapse, that it would make them change their mind about the country, vote differently in a referendum? Ukraine is a great industrial and agrarian country. It is enough just to say that we are in a fifth of the biggest exporter of grain. We are the country with the airspace industry. We are the country which uh, sells its metallurgy items towards all the world. We are not poor country. We are grubbed country. Okay, thank you very much. Um, someone from the back. Yes, there's a gentleman there with a white shirt. Lots of exercise for our <laughs> microphone holders. Hello, my name is David and I'm a research graduate. And my comment would be, is there not a possibility that uh, these bases within Ukraine could have contained nuclear weapons? And perhaps that might be why Putin was almost forced into it, locked in terms of military planning to take over the Crimea rather than simply his own personal admission. Oh, well, interesting thought. Uh, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But let's just take it. There's another um, hand, I think, that was up. Yes, you with the... Uh, yes, right there. Um, I had a question about uh, self-determination. And in lots of recent years, the West has supported self-determination of people in countries where the regimes were not fit for purpose. And in this case, it's an interesting question of whose responsibility across the community, or the global community, is it to enable the people of Crimea um, to determine which part of country they want to be in? Okay, can we have your... Can you tell us who you are? Uh, Dario Knutsova. I uh, work for a non-profit, but I'm Russian. Oh, thank you. Um, let's come back to the panel on that. Um, Roderick. Well, I wanted to, and I'm not really qualified to, but I wanted to say something about Ukraine after independence. Because there's been a certain questioning, certainly on the Russian side, whether this country was capable of being independent or not. And I think the deputy ambassador dealt with some of those questions. Ukraine, when it became independent in 1992, had many advantages that Russia didn't have. It was compact territory. It had industry, had educated people like Russia does. It had European connections. If you, if you went to Kiev at that time, it was a European kind of city. It was quite different from Moscow. It felt different. It was warmer, but it had Central European architecture. This was a country which had all these problems and divisions, but it was a country, or it was a place, and the people that were capable, they had the potentiality to make a, a successful, independent country. And we all recognised that at the time. And I think with all the problems that have happened since, a lot of them incompetent, Ukrainian governments, a lot of them outside interference, not only by Russians. It's got worse. But um, the fact is that we should, should hang on to the... We shouldn't let people push us off the idea that this is a country which, with all its problems, does have the potentiality to be a serious independent country and to take its place with others. My own view, which we'll come on to, no doubt, is that it can only do that... Uh, if Russia either agrees or acquiesces, because Russia's potentiality, capability for making trouble in Ukraine is not going to go away. But that's, of course, where we are now. Uh, ben, you wanted to say something. 
I think it's very important to, to... Russian propaganda likes to talk about the Kosovo precedent, and if the West can intervene in Yugoslavia and help Kosovo become independent, therefore we can do it anywhere else ourselves. What Putin, by talking, comparing Crimea to Kosovo, is being incredibly duplicitous. Like, Kosovo had to be saved from an act of genocide with Albanians being driven over the mountains on trucks and, uh, on trucks and, in, car- and in carts being shot at after massacres. In Crimea, there was no unlivable situation. And according to polls, and there was one conducted just a, a month ago asking the question of what people's interest was, less than 40% of people in Crimea were interested in joining Russia. This is really being manufactured out of midnight nightmares that Putin has found in Russian minds and in Crimean minds because of this hysterical propaganda. Can I just come back to to you as you ask the question, to ask if you agree with that? Can we take the microphone back up? The the lady at the top. Um, I, I agree to some extent. I think it's just a very challenging situation where the Western community doesn't know how to react, whether to protect the national sovereignty of Ukraine, who they've criticized um, in the last few weeks about the kind of institutions they've developed, um, or whether to enable individuals in that community with very corrupt institutions. So we never know whether polls or votes actually indicate the real state of that region, whether the West should support them in really saying which, which country or which region they identify themselves with, given the complex history. Can I ask, as you're Russian, do you support what President Putin has been doing over this crisis? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't support what he's been doing um, at all, uh, but I think the way that it's been portrayed in the West doesn't uh, really realise the complexities of the situation. So I actually think he's been, his actions are often driven by the West rather than the interests of the Crimean people. And the West's actions are not often driven by the interests of the Crimean people. We're going to have to wrap up for halfway through, but there's a lady with her hand up here in, the, in black. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Ksenia Shedova. I'm a graduate of uh, UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies. And, um, and, and Ksenia, where are you from? I'm Belarusian. Um, so my question um, to the panel would be, I, the, the title of this event, Russia, Ukraine and us, I think we are all interested in how to solve the crisis which is happening um, at the moment. And I'm afraid that by by spending so much time uh, discussing the <coughs> Crimean problem. We are all being misled in a way, um, as I strongly support Professor Abelbaum's point that this is an um, artificially create, created problem, which, me, which um, is purposed to drag the attention of the international community, of the rest, of the Ukrainian people, and most importantly of Russian people, from what <coughs> actually happened in Ukraine. So I think that we cannot solve this problem unless uh, Russian government recognizes the current government of Ukraine. So my question is, what can we do to make Russian government recognize the government in Ukraine, who they sell, say, who they portray to their own people, as a group <coughs> of um, extre- people who um, seized the power uh, with the help of extremists, terrorists, and um, so how Putin will explain this to his own people when he recognizes? And how otherwise can we solve the problem unless Russia doesn't recognize the government? Thank you. 
Just before we go on, let's, let's quickly gauge opinion again here in the audience uh, on what we've been talking about. Raise your hand if you think that President Putin is seeking to force Ukraine to stick close to Russia. Okay, I, well, I can't count you all. I'd say that's maybe half, maybe two-thirds. Let's see how many think the other way around. Raise your hand now if you think President Putin is seeking to protect the interests of Russians and Russian speakers in Ukraine. Yeah, some hands going up. Not too many, but just a few. Can I ask you, you've got your hand up there, um, uh, to tell us a bit more about what you think about that. Do, do tell us who you are. Yes, the lady there. Yes, your, your question? Yeah, I, I would, you, you, just, you just put up your hand when I asked if you think President Putin is seeking to protect the interests of Russian, Russian speakers in Russia and Ukraine. Can you explain a bit more why you put your hand up? Uh, Can you tell us who you are? Sorry? Can you tell us who you are? Um, my name is Anna. I'm a student in LSE. And um, I'm from the south of Russia, which is just 70 kilometers from Ukraine. And um, I have a family in Ukraine, and I want... Um, President Putin to protect my family, my friends, and um, Russian speakers in, uh, in this part of Ukraine. And what do you think they need protecting from? Um, from the accusing and uh, from the extreme poverty that is uh, nowadays there. So, so the, the problems you think are economic, it's not about politics then? Uh, not only. Um, not in, not in Crimea, but in Donetsk, there are my family, my grandmother, she's not able really to go out because um, it's, it's, it's not really possible because it's uh, dangerous. There are a lot of activists, terrorists there, and uh, I feel... Sorry? Go, go on, go on, do. You, you were saying? Yeah, I mean, that's it. Um, there were a few. Other, there were some other people who had hands up. Yes, there's a gentleman there with a beard just um, be behind you. Yeah, uh, uh, David Glue. I have no um, specific status. Um, if, if, <laughs> everybody seems to agree with Anne Appleman. Everybody on the panel that this is a manufactured crisis, manufactured by Russia. But the fact is, on the first day of this interim government, about ten days ago, the, the Ukrainian government said we don't have two official languages in Ukraine will have one, Ukrainian. It's as stupid and as provocative as Canada saying, we won't have two languages, but just English. Yeah, that law didn't pass, by the way. That, well, that's right. There was a discussion about it, and quite recently the interim president decided yeah, to delay it. Yeah. But would you agree, Anne Applebaum, that, that maybe it was unwise to raise that at this point? It's a complicated story because it was a law passed in an unpopular manner earlier on. It was actually a reversal of a previous law. So there, once again, there's, there's a deeper story. But believe me, the, the, the Russian language is not under threat in Ukraine. Uh, Russian, on the contrary, Russian media, Russian television are, are much slicker. They're widely watched. Uh, Russian books are widely read. I know some of my books have been translated into Ukrainian, and so I know from my own Ukrainian publishers that they have trouble selling books in Ukraine. It's much easier to sell books in Russia, uh, even in Ukraine. Um, so the, 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 the Russian language is not in danger in Ukraine and never has been. 
either an official, it's either an official language or it isn't. It's, it's, it's not a question of whether people can speak it or stuff. If you were tried in a court of it's, law, could it's, you it's answer used it? By bo- it is widely used by everybody in all contexts. It's either an official okay. language or it isn't. And f- how can people be so stupid as to take the richer neighbour, okay. the powerful neighbour, and say, no, 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 you can't, get, a court can't speak. You've, in, made, you've um, made your point, and Russia. it's a good one, but thank you very much. <laughs> Yes, Ben Judah. Let's just talk about, like, does Putin believe in protecting ethnic Russians? I've travelled all over Central Asia. Central Asia has up to 10 million ethnic Russians. What did Vladimir Putin do when all of the rights of ethnic Russians in Turkmenistan were torn up and the people virtually forced to emigrate? He did nothing because he wanted Turkmen oil and gas. What did he do about the ethnic Russians in Uzbekistan when he wanted to sign military agreements with Uzbekistan? He did nothing. What did Vladimir Putin do for the ethnic Russians of Kazakhstan? He did nothing because it was better to have... An, he wanted to build a Eurasian Union of Kazakhstan. Vladimir Putin has picked up this issue of ethnic Russians, which he's done virtually nothing about in Central Asia, and it's been a huge cause of anger from the Russian opposition. He picked it up to... to in Ukraine because he doesn't tolerate the idea of Ukrainian sovereignty, of Ukraine being able to choose its own, its own future. He's been, he was completely uninterested about ethnic Russian rights when his men were in power there, and it's a new, it's a new tool of Russian propaganda, not a consistent policy thread. So your view, Ben... This, this is your view of what President Putin wants. What about you, Roderick Braithwaite? Um... I. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you get. Let you. Yeah. Go. Well, I, I. I was thinking of something else at the time. I. I think that. I think that Ben describes a reality, but in highly colourful language. The question about Putin, which he's posed himself, and we do have the Georgia president, is how far is he willing to go? One could easily imagine a scenario and that's uh, being reflected in some of the stuff that his people have put out, including in the New York Times, you, you can imagine a scenario where Ukraine, things have gone perhaps farther than he intended, but anyway, it looks as though there's going to be a referendum and the results will be what they are, but that he does what he did with Georgia. The, so the Russian army, I nearly said Soviet army, that was a mistake. The Russian army did not actually go into Tbilisi which everybody expected it to, it stopped. Because what it, got out of the, what it got out of the Georgian war was two puppet autonomies and a Georgian government which is going to be less liable to cock a snook at the Russians than it was before. So he stopped. Now, whether he's going to do that in Ukraine or not, we don't yet know, and this is the kind of situation which can develop in all sorts of unpleasant and unforeseeable ways. But it's feasible that what he wants to do is, having made his point, having made the point to the Ukrainians, that they'd better take note of what Moscow wants, otherwise there'll be trouble again. And if he thinks they've understood that, he might stop there. Can I make another point, which is uh, I wanted to pick up on what Ben said about Kosovo and what the lady up there said about protecting people. Let's stay with Putin, okay? Okay. I just want to talk about bombing people. Perhaps that comes at the end of your discussion, when we decide what are we going to do next. A lot of bombing went on. I'm happy to link the question of ethnic Russians with some of the economic questions that were brought up earlier, and because it comes right to the heart of the point of why this is happening right now. 
So why, why, why is the Russian army spreading out across the Crimean Peninsula? And why are we talking about Crimea this week instead of talking about Kiev? You know, in any, if, the, if, if what was going on in Crimea weren't happening, we would still be talking about Ukraine because, as some have said earlier, Ukraine is on the brink of a major financial meltdown. You know, it's like Argentina. It's like Mexico. We would be talking about that. It would be on the front pages. We aren't talking about it now because Putin has very deliberately distracted us from that conversation. Um, one, of, you know, one of the other reasons that much of what we're seeing is happening is that Ukraine has... Um, for the last 10 years, uh, really almost one could say for the last 20 years, been run by people who don't have uh, the interests of the country at heart, the prosperity of the country at heart. It's been run by people who are interested in lining their own pockets, as we've, as we've seen in graphic detail with revelations about the President Yanukovych's house in recent days. Um, we've se- you know, th- th- there's been graft on a, on a really incredible scale. Um, what should be happening in Ukraine now and what I hope will happen is that the energy that we've seen on the streets in Kiev and in other parts of the country, um, the positive energy that's gone towards people calling towards closer ties with Europe, towards anti-corruption, that that will now be uh, converted into the creation of new institutions, um, into into a new government, into a new way of of running the country that will make it um, powerful enough and serious enough so that it won't be seen as a pawn between East and West, so that it will have its own identity and, will be able to, and it will be able to move forward. Alexis Oligovyanko, what do you think? I think that if you look at it from the Ukrainian perspective, from what people think and the perceptions that they have of what Russia is doing to them, uh, is that, you know, the first thing is that they probably would not accept that President Putin has a strategy. They think that he's engaged in a special operation that the challenge was Ukraine was moving to Europe, the Ukraine, he was losing it for the second time, first time being the Orange Revolution, and he wanted to do something about it. Because if you look at the Russian objective, uh, say, to keep Ukraine away from Europe, uh, this is lost. Ukraine will probably move much closer to Europe and very, very soon. To bring Ukraine into the customs union, forget it, it will never happen probably. This is the Eurasian Union this that is the Eurasian to set up union. with Belarus yes, and Kazakhstan. And Kazakhstan. Uh, to prevent nationalism, radicalization in Ukraine, I think the effect will be the opposite. And unfortunately, I think the radicalization inside Russia, which we will be probably even on a greater scale. Uh, to get Crimea, he'll probably get it. He already has it, de facto. Uh, to create uh, legalization of this through a referendum, it will be as representative as Turkmen elections. So, uh, so if you do the list of what he wanted and what he actually will get, he probably will get more problems at the end of this whole affair, and we don't know how it will end, and his megaphones are saying that eastern Ukraine, southeastern Ukraine is in the, uh, on the cards, that it's not necessarily stopping at Crimea. Uh, I think 21st of this month will be the time, will be the date when uh, Federation Council will consider accepting the uh, Crimean autonomy into Russia. I think it's not clear where it will end, but in terms of gains, it could be, in terms of special operation and the linguistics of special operation, it could be a battle won, but the war lost. I guess you you could look at this two ways, couldn't you? You could either see it as a president who's been, a Russian president who's been quite humiliated, having lost uh, a Ukrainian leader for the second time. What's the Oscar Wilde quote? Once is carelessness, second time is, from what it was, misfortune. But but, uh, he has good reason to feel absolutely furious. So is this being driven by emotion? 
Or is it being driven by cold, calculated strategy? What do you think, Anne? Look, I think he sees that if Ukraine were to become um, a a successful and prosperous democracy with links to, to, to Europe, he sees that as a personal threat to him and to his power. How does he run Russia? Russia is autocratic. It's run by a corrupt oligarchy. Um, It's not transparent. Um, If if Ukraine, which is the country closest uh, historically and culturally to Russia, is able to choose a different path, maybe some Russians would want that too. And it is really that threat, that it's the threat to his own power and his own legitimacy as the autocratic leader of Russia that he fears. You know, the, the reason why he needs to disrupt Ukraine, okay, there is something about, there is something about Russian imperialism and you know, dreams of, of the Tartars and, and, and the great conquests of the past and so on, but I think it's the, it, at base this is really about his personal power and the way he rules his country. And he, doesn't, he, he can't um, allow there to be a counterexample. He can't allow um, a close neighboring country, which is so close to him, uh, take a different path. And I think that's what's happening. Ben Judah. Humiliated. We are humiliated by the West. We hear Putin say this constantly. We hear, the, we hear the Russian elite repeat this like a mantra. And it's complete rubbish. Nobody in the West is humiliating the Russian elite. Because where are the Russian elite? The Russian elite are living in Mayfair. The Russian elite are having drinks in number one Hyde Park. The Russian elite have the best Western lawyers, the best Western hedge funders, and the best Western tax havens working for them. They know they're not being humiliated by all of these kind of companies and institutions that I can't name, of course. But Putin has made a bet, and the bet he has made is that the Western elite is the weakest Western elite since the 1930s. He thinks Obama is professorial, more think tanker than leader. He thinks Cameron is more interested in protecting bankers' profits than Ukrainian sovereignty. He thinks France is more interested in protecting uh, sales from its military-industrial complex than, than security in Europe. This is what his bet is, is that for the Western elite... The Western elite has changed. It's no longer a crusading moral alliance. This is the age of the hedge funder. His bet is that contemporary Western elites have the morality of hedge funds. Get the money and take it offshore. What does Putin know? He knows, and his elite know this perfectly well, because they're asset-stripping Russia. They're not building an empire. All of these billions are going into British tax havens. Britain still has an empire. It has a financial empire of little islands, Gibraltar, Guernsey, the British Virgin Islands, upon which the sun truly never sets, and that's where the money's going. He knows that, and he is very confident that David Cameron that, uh, and the, the British cabinet is not going to impose any banking sanctions that will affect the profits of the city of London, which is why he's confident to push and push and push and push in Ukraine. This raises a very interesting question, though, doesn't it, about um, so-called European values, Western values. We hear quite a lot from the Russian president about how they've been shown to be a paper tiger and hypocritical. I mean, he talks partly about self-determination and intervention, which has been raised already, but he also talks about hypocrisy in terms of you, you say one thing, but you do another. Does he have a point, Roderick? Well, the, uh, yes, he does have a point. Uh, but I think there are, there are a whole lot of things. The question of humiliation is not nearly as simple as Ben has said it is, because a lot of Russians, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, actually did feel humiliated. And what, what happened? Wait a minute. They, they, uh, a lot of the elite felt 
humiliated as well. There was a very strong sense of humiliation, which is not confined to Putin. But I think Putin shares it, no doubt. That was the point about the, the great geopolitical tragedy. But I think you know, we need to talk a bit more about Putin, and we can come great on to... The geopolitical tragedy is when he said the collapse of the Soviet Union. The collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century, which is a hyperbole, I would have said. But still, it indicated something about the way he thinks. We should talk more about what they're calling London Grad, because I rather share Ben's view about London Grad. I think the city of London is a great, is a great when on the face of the British body politic, and he can't meet myself. But leaving that aside, let's talk about Putin and what motivates him. It seems to me that, first of all, I said it earlier, but I say again, that politics is not driven by cold calculation. And the great leaders of the world uh, do what they can driven by emotion, and sometimes it works and often it doesn't. Putin is a cunning man. He is a very uh, emotional man. He's a very vengeful and vindictive man. And a lot of that, seems to me, is coming out in the handling of this crisis. Uh, I don't know that he necessarily feels that he's been humiliated. He's miscalculated. He chose the wrong man twice in the case of Yanukovych. He supported Yanukovych in... I was in Moscow in 2004 where there were big banners in the streets in Moscow saying vote for Yanukovych. Um, and this guy has failed twice, Yanukovych. You know, so, okay, he, that does make Putin look a bit incompetent. So he's getting his own back and he is vindictive and uh, vengeful. And I think that's a lot of what's driving it. Now the question is whether in addition to the emotions he can calculate sufficiently to know when to stop and that it, we don't know. But it also know. raises the question of how do we deal with someone like that if that's true? If he is vengeful, if he is well, feeling slighted. I, and he also, I think Ben also has a point that he, um, he knows that we are not going to do in this crisis what we did in 1999 in the Balkans. We are not going to bomb anybody. I don't think that means that we've lost our crusading zeal, because I'm never very sure about our crusading zeal anyway, but it's a very different order of magnitude of a problem. Bombing bits of Russia would not go down well with all sorts of people. <laughs> but but no one's um, proposing that either. No one is proposing that. But, but no, uh, I know. That's, uh, that's can I come to you? I'd like to move to this question of, of what, what we're going to do because there's, there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of false um, choices being set up here. Either we do nothing or we bomb yeah. Russia. Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I, I think actually there, there are some things that are clearly going to be done in the short term. There are going to be um, individual financial sanctions on people deemed responsible for this crisis, and that may include a wide number of people. Um, I think something that this is starting to happen now is there's also going to be in the longer, medium and longer term, a real geopolitical realignment in the West. There's going to be a new way of thinking about Russia. Um, up until now, there's been a kind of narrative about Russia that Russia is a sort of flawed Western country. You know, that it, it's on a progress, it's on a track towards becoming respectable, and sooner or later, if we just involve them in enough Western institutions and we let them join the G8 and the Council of Europe, then eventually they'll become, they'll integrate, because why wouldn't they? It's the country of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Um, and I, you know, I, I certainly had sympathy with that view in the 1990s. It's become clear, though, that that's not what's happening. Um, that Russia sees itself very differently, that it has a different idea about politics, it has a different idea of international law, and it's going to be playing now by different rules, and I think that's going to cause a 
geopolitical alignment of a kind we haven't seen since 1991. And there may well be a military aspect in terms of moving troops and, and bases around, around so Europe. So you're talking about there, a return to the Cold War, actually? No, I'm not talking about a return to the Cold War. I'm talking about thinking differently about Russia. There may, be, there may well be a new attitude towards Russian money um, that will make Ben feel happier um, about living here in London. Um, I, I think there's, you know, this is, we're just at the beginning now of a new kind of thinking. And it's not about, you know, making, demonizing Russia. It's not about, um, you know, an international ideological competition of the kind we had in the 20th century. It's just thinking differently about Russia. Russia is not going to join Western institutions. It's not going to become part of the West. So we have, and it, and it is interested in blocking. It is interest. it may have land, um, it may have territorial uh, ambitions in other places besides Ukraine. We need to start thinking about that and preparing by that. And I think, um, like it or not, that's started this week, that process. The question is, though, in the broader uh, international arena, how much is this going to change things? I mean, you think about how do we solve the crisis in Syria? Or how do you deal with the question of Iran's potential nuclear weapons if Russia is no longer a partner in negotiations but is something more uneasy? What do you think, Roderick? Well, I think I partly agree with Anne um, uh, that we're going to have to think about Russia, not perhaps in a wholly different way, but in a different time frame. I mean, the chances of Russia becoming uh, part of Western institutions is pushed well down the line. That's true. Um, I think that uh, Russia is, after all, it doesn't. The, the, the dependencies and the interests don't go only, only one way. Russia has an interest in remaining on terms with the West where there's business to be done, and that works both ways. So if you like Syria, Iran, various things, uh, there's no particular reason why, once all this is over, which everything ends sooner or later, once it's over, why the Russians shouldn't come back and we shouldn't come back to cooperating on things on a case-by-case basis. Actually, that's what we've already been doing for, I should think, getting on for a decade. Uh, Whether Russia ever evolves into something recognisable as a liberal democracy or not is, uh, I, I don't know, I used to share the view, which I think Anne shared, that, that was they were on track. I don't exclude it, but one thing I'm quite sure of is that we are not going to make it much difference to that. The Russians have got to do it for themselves. People have to do these things for themselves outside fiddling about, and we haven't talked much about fiddling about that's gone on on the West's part in Ukraine. Outside fiddling about is usually a bad news. The people themselves have to do it. You have to make a difference, of course, don't you, between Russia, meaning Mr. Putin's government, and quite a lot of Russian people who might feel very differently about this, yeah, Ben. Yeah. Well, let's, let's just talk about how long will Putin last? Well, what's really keeping Putin in power? And I think it's very important to understand that Vladimir Putin isn't really this dour former KGB agent intent on rebuilding the Soviet Union, Russia would be so lucky. You know, Vladimir Putin is what Russians call a werewolf, a man who is a patriot by day, but who is a criminal by night. Russia is run for profit by him and his clique. You have a clique of people whose assets are worth over 180 billion, who are asset stripping the country, and exporting these, uh, these stolen goods and these stolen money to Western tax havens, and As a result, you have billions and billions and billions and billions riding on Putin continuing. The moment that Putin falls is the moment that he stops being the guarantor of that money and he becomes a threat to that money. Putin knows this. 
Putin knows perfectly well, just like I do, that if you drive outside Moscow, the roads look like the Wehrmacht was there yesterday because they are so damaged because the budgets were stolen. He knows perfectly well that Russia's hospitals are collapsing in Siberia because the budget was stolen. He knows this very well, which is why he needs a new story. He needs a new narrative to justify, what am I doing here? Why am I still president? And that story is the national security threat. Russia is an embattled fortress, surrounded by enemies. I must rule because I'm the only person strong enough to defend us in this terrifying age of Euro-Sodom and uh, American imperialists and neo-Nazi sleeper cells from World War II. Putin's actually a lot like the people who rule Britain today. He's very... he's, He's cynical. It's about money. He knows that the money is the most important thing. He's not a kind of 19th century nationalist... Okay, Ben, I want to move us on. (laughs) This question about values, though, that I raised. Yes, we'll come to you in a minute. This question about values, though, that I raised, is there a a sense that this um, geopolitical divide that we see opening up is also opening up something else? Alexei, I wonder what you thought. President Putin poses himself, doesn't he, as a new conservative leader for the world who's offering something different from what the West offered. He doesn't have necessarily a lot of support. Uh, Even Belarus recognized the new authorities, but China is ambivalent, and I think there's a lot of clout in the United Nations Security Council. Therefore, resolutions condemning the referendum probably will be vetoed. But I think coming back from what you described to the practical level of what can be done, I would as a first step, change Putin's advisers on Ukraine. I think the biggest problem that he had in 2004 and the biggest problem that he has now, Uh, he's talking to a very, very limited group of people who are giving him a totally different perspective. And because he doesn't talk to anyone else, this is his understanding of what's going on. On this question of values, do you think there is a point that the West has somehow... Uh, presented itself in the last few years that it's, it's, it's offered a, a weaker argument to, what, uh, to, to counter what President Putin says. In what sense? I don't think that the argument was much weaker. I think uh, there was no argument very often at all. Uh, certainly in reference to Ukraine, in reference to how Ukraine is be, uh, has to be seen or what is the European dimension, uh, say, of Ukraine, I think there was a lot of confusion. I remember several years ago I spoke to the uh, foreign minister of Slovakia who told me that when Slovakia was on the verge of entering the European Union, uh, everything was very simple. You do this, this, and this. This is the set of things you must do, and then you're in. When Ukraine was approached in a similar way, the message was you do this, this, and this, which will be good for your country, uh, it will be good enough for you, but there's no prospect, whatever, of being part of the family. And I think uh, the NATO summit was very, very interesting illustration of how Mr. Putin with the participation of Germany and direct links to the German politicians, managed actually to rewrite what was sort of... uh, It could have prevented what we see today had Ukraine been giving a little bit more foothold uh, within NATO. But at that time, I think the European divisions prevented it, uh, and I think that was uh, one of the biggest problems, that uh, the results of which we're facing now in the Crimea. Because one of the things that's perhaps been for some people a little bit surprising about what's happened in Ukraine is that just at this time where in the last few years Europe has found itself in difficulty, particularly economically, worrying about its, its viability as, a, as an enlarged union, as one that's been in trouble, 
this is the time when countries like Ukraine, we see the EU flag fluttering from Independence Square. And it seems as though that is where there's more, there's more faith and hope in the, the, the idea of Europe than there almost is within it. I, I think this, this point about the idea of Europe um, is a very interesting one because, of course, Europe is sort of an idea, but, but what, what is it that Europe actually offered Ukraine? What, what did this argument start about? It started over a trade agreement, which was, is a thousand pages long. Um, much of it concerns intellectual property rights and copyright law. Um, it's one of the most boring documents I've ever read. In fact, I can't even claim to have really read through the whole thing. But in a sense, it, it offered, it really is what Europe is. So Europe isn't a big idea or an ideology or, you know, gay rights or, you know, that, that's not actually what the European Union is or what it offers its members. Europe offers rule of law. You know, rule, Europe offers a free trade zone, a kind of, a, you know, a place in which everybody is treated equal under the law, you know, in theory. And this was what was offered Ukraine, and this was appealing to the Ukrainians, um, at least, at least to, to the younger Ukrainians and to the ones who went out on the street. And this, this, this very boring vision of free trade zones and courts where we contract law and courts where we make decisions that aren't made, this actually was what Yanukovych rejected and what Putin was unable to accept. So actually when we were, when we were offering something to Ukraine, we weren't offering, it wasn't about bases or geopolitics or, um, you, know, you know, you're going to be in the West and therefore you get people come and sing the Star-Spangled Banner. It was, it was, it was, a, very, um, it was a very mild vision of free trade. Um, and it's interesting that that was too much for Putin. That was too much for the, for the, for the corrupt Ukrainian elite. That, that, that very mild vision of what Europe is. Um, but it remains appealing to a lot of people. Roger. Well, I think that's, of course, absolutely true. But uh, Europe, when we say Europe, we're talking about the European Union, actually, because... Europe's bigger than the European Union. But it is an institution of a very boring kind which does all these things. But it is an idea. And uh, it was set up in order to stop us killing one another after the Second World War. And it's been quite successful in doing a number of things. Attached to this institution was the idea that it had some magic way of making people democratic. You take them in, they meet a few, they say they're going to meet a few requirements, they come in, turns out that making them democratic isn't actually very easy at all. That's one thing. The second no, thing actually is... Actually, it's been a very successful a minute, institution wait. for the spreading of democracy. Yeah, it has in some ways. Probably but the most successful so, in the world. That may also be true, but it's, the competition is rather low. Um, <laughs> but, uh, leave, but there's a, a further point which I think is important, and it's about these institutions themselves. There's a lot of talk about how countries which meet these requirements have the right to join the union as they have the right to join NATO. But if you look at it from the other end of the telescope, these institutions themselves have the right to decide whether or not they can manage to accept. There are, I think Europe has already somewhat weakened itself as an institutional idea, as a, as a working set of institutions, by expanding too far. I think that uh, uh, bringing Ukraine in as a member, not making trade agreements, would put a great strain especially at the moment or in the last few years, on the workability of the union itself. That's one point. The same goes for NATO. There is a limit beyond which no institution can expand without blowing itself up like a bullfrog. And um, 
These are serious institutions. In my view, actually, the EU is more serious than NATO. But NATO, at the end of the day, is an institution under Article 5 of the treaty which says we'll all go to war if this country or that country's territorial integrity is violated. There is a limit to the number of countries to which you can credibly, credibly give that kind of guarantee because we are talking about war. And Eastern Europe is, is a part of the world where, where small countries have been betrayed time and again by the great powers, starting with Poland, possibly not starting with Poland, but anyway, Poland in 1939. We gave the Poles a guarantee. When it came to the point, we didn't fight, and the Poles were overrun. And the Poles haven't forgotten that, I don't think, have they, Anne? Um, so that you have to be quite careful what you're talking about. Trade agreements, fine, but the implication of that was that quite soon, somebody said quite soon, they would become full members of the European Sir, Union. Sir Roderick, maybe then the message should be as clear as you formulated it just now, because the problem for many people, certainly in Ukraine, and I think in Russia as well, was in the mixed message. It's neither here nor there. Yeah. Let's play yeah. this kind yeah. of yeah. sort of association agreement, sort of half measure, but we really don't want you in. Say yeah. so. Well, it, it may be part of the geopolitical realignment that we're about to see yeah. over the next decade, let, that let, that becomes possible. Let's take this thought about realignment to the audience, because it also links to this question of values, you know, is there, is, this, is there a clear line between one side and the other? Is one on the right side of history, as President Obama put it uh, just this week? Or is this actually uh, part, of the, part of the problem, part of the confusion, is that there has been a problem in the West. There are things which can be laid at its door which it's difficult to answer to. People bring up the invasion of Iraq for example, which makes it harder to make the case, Question, corruption in London or, or, or whatever. Let's, let's have a few views from the, from the audience. Deputy Ambassador of Ukraine, you have your hand up. Uh, thank you very much. It seems to me that our discussion is coming to its end. We had very fruitful and interesting exchange of views, but I think the added value of this discussion will be much more greater if we will understand that the Russians today severely violating the United Nations Charter by the aggression against Ukraine. They severely violated the Helsinki Final Act. They violated the bilateral treaty about uh, friendship and cooperation. And last but not least, they severely violated and actually neglected the Budapest Memorandum about the assurances of our independence. This is another proof of Bismarck's very famous phrase that the treaties with the Russians were not worthy the paper they are written on. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, gentlemen, your hand up. Hi there. I'm, uh, I'm Alistair Sloan. I work for The Guardian and The Daily Beast in the US. Um, so I, I, I don't like Mr. Putin at all. I think he's quite a, uh, a nasty man, but he's incredibly capable. And I think the way that he consolidated and totally manipulated the media during the conflict was incredibly impressive. I think he's distracted from internal problems. I think he's played to nationalist sentiment. Um, and he's kind of skipped around the international rule book that the deputy ambassador was referring to, and I think he's enjoying it. I think we play by those rules, but he doesn't at all. Um, in contrast, the, the Western response has been pretty feeble. So we've got a sanctions regime which has been cobbled together and, you know, it seems like it's going to be relatively toothless. Um, 
We've got David Cameron, who, uh, like a true statesman, did a selfie of himself on the phone to uh, whoever it was. Um, the EU, who, who can't seem to keep their phone conversations private and are getting constantly hacked, which is very embarrassing, and all these conversations leaked onto the internet. And President Obama, who is, as ever, um, fairly pointless. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think the West basically needs to suit up and get ready because Putin is a, is a dangerous man. He does, he does stuff for his own reasons, but when he does it, it's short, it's sharp, and it's very, very effective. Okay, there's a gentleman here with his hand up. I'm Dmitry Lidnik, the voice of Russia Radio, Russia's international broadcaster. Where do I begin? <laughs> now, the, Just the debate is called Russia, Ukraine, and us. I thank you, Sir Roderick, for almost playing the role of Russia's ambassador in London. <laughs> but Russia is not there. Russia was not there in November when uh, uh, the EU association agreement was declined, and Russia suggested, well, let's sit down the three parties, Ukraine, Russia, EU, and talk. Barroso said no. In dealing with Russia, in dealing with Putin, we're trying not to deal with Putin. How do you suppose to resolve all that? What would you say is the resolution to this crisis? <laughs> Cooler heads, first of all. Yeah. Pull back. And believe me, well, there's a lot of belligerence on both sides of the... Uh, but does pullback mean pullback from, pull for example, presence in Crimea? Emotionally, first of all. First of all, emotionally. Uh, the men on the ground have not been shooting, thank God. Hope they won't. Maybe, actually, I may say something that will not be popular with this audience, but maybe Putin's move with the military, with the Black Sea Marines, or whoever they are, even if they are Russian servicemen. Maybe that... Maybe. Okay, okay. Very improbable. Fine, fine. Whoever they are, what they did is prevent, or at least they drew a red line. Guys, this is the red line, and you don't cross it. No, uh, yeah, okay, Ben. I, I, yeah, that's, that's another set. I've got a list here. But, you, but your, co your comments <laughs> reveal that you don't accept Ukraine as an independent country. If Ukraine is trying to sign an association agreement with the European Union, what's that got to do, what's that got to do with Russia? You know, if you... Just okay. okay, Ukraine and Russia will always have, or at least uh, probably in my generation, you know, and a couple of next ones, will have a special relationship. Whatever one thinks or, or not, you know, wants it or not. I, my, my grandfather ran away from Ukraine. He was a mayor in a small town in Ukraine. He ran off from communist oppression or reprisals to Siberia. That's my heritage. So the link is there, and let's not laugh it off, guys. 
But Britain has huge family ties to Ireland. At least 10% of the British population, like me, with at least one Irish grandparent. And it was very, very painful for Britain to disengage with Ireland, but eventually it happened. Bridget, can I just very quickly... Bridget, can I very quickly say... I think uh, President Putin uh, once... Uh, was very, very angry over Kosovo. And I remember him uh, talking at a press conference in Moscow. I think, Bridget, you may have been there. When he was saying very, very adamantly with, you know, banging his fist on the table, he was saying there is this legal principle, equal shall not dictate to an equal. He was saying it in Latin. His Latin is much better than mine. But the message was that you don't tell us because we are as good as you are. We are on an equal footing. Why do you think he is not applying the same principle to Ukraine? Let, let's take another comment. Yes, here in the centre. Hi, I'm Bill Browder. I'm from Hermitage Capital and running the Magnitsky Justice Campaign. Um, the, um, <clears throat> uh, ben stru- uh, struck on something which, which I think needs to be... Uh, Elaborated on. Let's just be clear here. You used to do business in in Russia, uh, in Mr. Putin's Russia, until you fell out with him and left. Uh, and uh, the reasons you left were because you thought that your business was in danger of being was being raided. Uh, you set up a campaign. Your lawyer, Mr. Magnitsky, was running it, and he ended up in a Russian prison where he died in custody, and then was put on trial as a dead man. More or less. <laughs> Thank you for that summary. <laughs> Vladimir Putin has been running for 14 years a um, different type of government than we're used to in the West, in which the um, purpose of being a government minister is to enrich oneself. And over this period of time, the top 1,000 people have enriched themselves to a great extent. It worked up until 2008 when everyone else was getting richer at the same time. But in 2008, the average Russian wasn't getting richer anymore. Now, how do you run a regime where you steal everything um, and the people, 141 million people, are not benefiting from that 1,000 people stealing? And the answer was that people started getting angry. And over the last two years, people started standing up and protesting. And one of the most popular opposition candidates who had no access to television, no access to anything, was Alexei Navalny, who got 30% of the vote in the Moscow mayoral election from nothing. This is about American, uh, Russian domestic politics you're talking about. Oh, How is this relevant to Ukraine? I'm going to get to that in one second. It's very relevant to Ukraine. If you're a kleptocrat and the people are getting angry, what do you do? You create a diversion. And I believe, deep, deeply, and knowing Russia and knowing Putin... That, that this was, there was no sincerity to any of this geopolitical talk, to any of this, this uh, Crimea, this was our country. This was about creating a diversion so the people of Russia don't rise up, put him in jail, take all of his money away, and arrest all of his associates. And there's one easy solution to this whole problem, which is if it's all about kleptocracy, if it's all about money that's been stolen, it hasn't been kept in Russia, it's been kept in the West. And the way, the way you deal with this problem is to go after the people who have started this problem as a diversion and go after their assets in the West. If you get their assets in the West, that's, that's a bigger deterrent than any nuclear deterrent for a kleptocracy. And that's what we should be doing right now. There's a lady here, yes, right there. 
thank you. Elena Malikishvili, King's College London, PhD candidate. Uh, I would like to elaborate on the point about Putin's power, as Professor Applebaum spoke earlier, um, that yes, it is about his power, and it is about seeking and looking for a significant other. And Ukraine just came up as a very convenient example of that other. And also, what I would like to uh, mention is his press briefing uh, two or three days ago, and the very wording he chose, I, I listen it in Russian, so I can say the wording he chose and how he addressed the questions and also um, a part of cynicism in his answers is a demonstration of, of this uh, approach of finding okay, others you. and uh, enemies. Thank you. Let's just take uh, one or two. Uh, yes, there's a lady. Oh, we've heard from you already. Is there any... Um, right at the back, there's a hand up there, I think. Hi, I'm Sonali Campion. I'm a master's student here at LSE, uh, and I was an observer on the parliamentary elections in 2012. Um, Where? In Ukraine. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the Russian leadership and even the Western leadership, but obviously there has been a presidential election called. Um, how much, well, do, A, do you think it will go ahead, and B, how much do you think that's going to change the situation? Okay, I think we won't take answers to questions, but keep it with comments. Did you have anything to comment, to add to what we've said already? Well, I, I was just wondering, because it feels like it could be quite significant, depending on whether it's considered pro-Russian or pro-EU. Yeah, well, um, very fast-moving events. Let's just take one more question from the floor. Um, yes, here. My name is uh, John Luff, um, Chatham House. I very much agree with the point that uh, we are going to end up, as a result of this crisis, with a new way of thinking about Russia. This is long overdue. We still have structures we created in the 1990s um, within the EU, a partnership and cooperation agreement with Russia, the NATO-Russia Council, for example, where we've actually seen, unfortunately, precious little cooperation, very isolated cooperation. So we do have to, have to move be, be beyond that. And I remember as a, actually a former NATO official in Russia in the mid-1990s that the NATO, of course, was characterized as bad, but the EU as good. I don't think this crisis in Ukraine would have come about in the way that it has if we hadn't seen this alienation between Russia and Europe and Russia defining itself increasingly, unfortunately, in anti-European terms. That brings us to a final, just a final brief round table to the, to the four of you, just to throw ahead, because this has all been quite gloomy, really. Uh, we are in the midst of a big crisis, and it's unfolding as we speak. It's hard to look ahead. But is there a way out of this? Is there a way to get back from this new divide which Anne Applebaum described? Or is it too late? Very quickly, from each of you, if you had to give one bit of advice to those trying to tackle this, what's the most important thing to solve it or to stop this confrontation from getting really acute or to stop the violence on the ground in Ukraine from exploding? Anne Applebaum. I'm going to answer with a Slavic proverb that at least one person in this room has already heard before, uh, which my mother-in-law uses, a Polish mother-in-law, which is, where there is death, there is hope. And by that, I don't mean what you think. I mean that there is a generational change coming in both Russia and Ukraine, um, that people who are right now under 40 don't really remember communism anymore. 
Um, and there are people in both countries who are now capable of thinking differently about the world, who know the world um, much better than, than their parents did and from a different perspective. Um, and so this, it's, it's, there, there is no, um, there's no preordained narrative that there has to be a conflict or this has to end badly. Um, both countries are capable of, of regenerating themselves, and I very much hope it's going to happen in Russia too. Ben Judah. I think this, the issue of Russia and Ukraine is going to be with us for a very long time, and even after Putin. The leader of the Russian opposition, Alexei Navalny, who was mentioned, believes and has told me that Russia and Ukraine should be one country. And he has a strong belief that ethnic Russian rights in Ukraine are being, are being trampled on. What my advice to Western policymakers would be to do now would be that Western, because I don't see Vladimir Putin as a true guardian of ethnic Russian linguistic rights, Western governments need to make sure that in Ukraine... Russian language rights are respected and that we are whiter than white as far as cultural rights that uh, people wishing to lead sort of Russian-speaking lives in Ukraine, uh, in Ukraine could enjoy. Because I think this problem is going to endure for years ahead. Roderick Braithwaite. Well, I rather agree with both of the previous speakers. I'm glad that Anne ends up being rather hopeful. Um, I think that if we are going to take... Uh, views and try to do things that should be exactly along the lines that Ben says. What we have to do is make it clear that these accusations don't hold water by various ways. And assuming that, for example, Western monitors are allowed into Ukraine, even if they're not allowed into Crimea, that would be one way of doing it. Um, I do think that if one's talking about mechanisms, bureaucrats always talk about whether the table should be round or square. The method forward at some point is going to have to be exactly what one of the speakers said. The three, the three of us, as it were, are going to have to get together and talk on equal terms because what I do believe, whether one likes it or not, one talks about countries having rights. Uh, Ukraine and Russia, if Ukraine is to prosper, have to get along with one another by hook or by crook and whenever that will happen. Otherwise it won't happen otherwise it won't happen that Ukraine will become a genuinely independent and prosperous country because the Russians can always use the levers. And so there has to be what Putin, whether Putin did propose this over the trade agreement that was turned down, whether that was a genuine proposal or not, doesn't really matter. It was the right idea at the end of the day. Alexis, I think uh, Odessa is the most multicultural, multi-ethnic city in Ukraine. And it's famous for its comedians, for its stand-up comics, humor, and everything. And I think uh, one of the videos that they put out that has gone viral, certainly in Ukraine, but also in Russia, is that varying comedians are phoning Mr. Putin and telling him, Vladimir Vladimirovich, go home. But before he does that, I think it's in the hands of Mr. Putin just to make three phone calls. He can, uh, he can really kill this crisis very, very quickly. One to Mr. Lavrov, his foreign minister. The second to Mr. Shoigu, his minister of defense. And the third, probably to President Obama. I don't know whether the third is necessary. But he, it, is, it is in his hands to close this chapter of very, very dangerous history very, very quickly. If he doesn't do that, I think we're, unfortunately, for a long haul of tension, because then the Russian government will not recognize elections, they will not recognize the future Ukrainian president, whoever that may be, they will not recognize the legitimacy of the authorities, and I think what happened in Crimea may spill over into eastern Ukraine, into southern Ukraine, and God knows where. A gloomy point on which to end. But thank you very much indeed, and thank you too to 
you here in the audience here at the London School of Economics. It's been a terrific discussion. It won't be the last one on this subject as this crisis continues to unfold. Thank you, all of you.